Now, you're listening to Irish Radio Canada at Home and Abroad, and the book was uh, launched, uh, published earlier on the year and launched there in the last week or so. And it is Bytown 1847, Elizabeth Briere and the Irish Famine Refugees, and it's by Michael McBain. And, of course, anybody here in Ottawa would be very familiar with Briere and uh, also with the Irish history. And 8047, of course, was a very significant year in that in many cases it's known as Black 47. But the Irish came to Ottawa before that because the Irish were very heavily involved in the construction of the Rideau Canal 1826 to 1832, so had put down their roots. So uh, Bytown 1847 had a very strong Irish contingent, very strong Irish influence, was very much an Irish, uh, nearly in a way, I suppose, would, would could have called it, there was an Irish ghetto that would have existed in Ottawa at that time. And Michael McBain is here with me. Mike, thanks a million for coming along. Delighted to meet you and interested in hearing about your work and this aspect of Irish history. Thanks a million. Uh, first of all, a bit of your own background. I know you're a, a deeply committed historian to the Irish in Ottawa. Yes, I, I describe myself as a lifelong student of Irish history and folklore in the Ottawa Valley. Um, been retired a number of years, so that gave me some time to do some research into this topic. Um, fortunately, we've got a number of archives in Ottawa and uh, was able to research and then ultimately tell the story of the arrival of the Irish famine refugees in Ottawa. And that's a story that really had never been told before. And as you say, you know, the, and as I said at the intro there, the Irish were here from an earlier period. So the refugees that would have been, have been arriving in 1847, I guess in many cases they would have been coming to probably some relatives. Absolutely. That was the dynamic. And for the most part, that's why people would choose to come, uh, come to, to Ottawa known at the time as Bytown, because in a way it was off the beaten track. It was not part of the main transportation corridor, which was the St. Lawrence River. So coming to Ottawa was a, was a detour. And uh, most people would make that detour in search of family, family and uh, friends. And would a lot of them then settled up the Ottawa Valley. Now, at that time, the Irish were not necessarily embraced as the pillars of society in Ottawa or in Bytown. So an influx of more Irish uh, probably was not seen as a positive. Absolutely not. And it's it's clear from uh, from government officials and the records they left behind, there was a heavy racist attitude towards the Irish. Um, let me just read you one little excerpt from uh, some correspondence of a fellow by the name of Earl Grey, who was the colonial secretary in London at the time, writing to the governor general in Canada, who was situated in Montreal in the midst of this horrific crisis. Um, and he told, he told Lord Elgin, quote, especially when you have to deal with Irish, that in the end, it's far better to do too little than too much and rather to allow to, to allow a good deal of suffering to take place than to take away the motive to exertion. So it's it's pretty explicit racism. They considered basically the Irish uh, as subhuman. And yet this was the same race who had been employed 
to deliver on the Rideau Canal and to deliver on so many other construction projects in and around the region. But absolutely, it was it was the Irish uh, laborers who who dug by mostly by hand this great uh, Rideau Canal. Uh, so yeah, they were used for their uh, their expertise in construction and heavy labor, but not uh, not really respected. But that's not the full story. The full story is, in spite of this racism, um, they were met with compassion and generosity by the community for the most part. With some exceptions, uh, the the community showed tremendous uh, compassion, especially Sister Briere, who was a young nun who had just come here from Montreal. And she took the initiative to set up a temporary hospital where there was no health care. There was no real public sector at all. There wasn't even a police force here. And she she could see this crisis coming. And she set up a temporary hospital and saved hundreds of lives because she was treating people for the typhus fever. And they were way ahead of their time in the sense that they, before there was scientific knowledge about how this this fever was, was spread, the sisters broke the chain of transmission by delousing the patients. So they would shave them and wash them and delouse them. And that was how they broke the chain of transmission and saved so many lives. Now, at that time, we know also there was a huge influx into Toronto and, uh, again, it created a medical crisis. And likewise, in uh, also in Montreal, and we are very familiar with Grosseil, and I had the privilege of visiting Grosseil and seeing the, decom, the decontamination area there, which I found very moving uh, right. because it has been retained in its original format. So um, how many people do you estimate then would have come in to join the Irish community in that period? Well, there was uh, approximately 100,000 uh, left Ireland to come to Canada. A little over the same number went to the United States. The interesting thing is, though, in that one year alone, 1847, at least 20,000 Irish died either on their way to Canada or traveling in Canada in that one summer. And the the death toll in the United States was much, much lower. So this was the worst year of Canadian immigration in our entire history. Uh, And it was basically through government neglect. They failed to protect uh, with uh, lack of passenger regulation, uh, both across the Atlantic, but also in inland waterways. There was horrific conditions uh, in the barges on the rivers, which led to unnecessary deaths. Uh, so 100,000 made their way, 20,000 died. And like you say, uh, a lot of the deaths were at Gros Isle in Quebec. The next largest number were in Montreal because they had these a very large compound of fever sheds where at least 5,000, probably eight to 10,000 people died in Montreal. And it was at Montreal they, where they sorted those who were they deemed in good enough shape to go further inland. Uh, and so they, those who survived Gross Hill and survived Montreal were sent up the St. Lawrence to um, Upper Canada. So Kingston, Toronto and Hamilton all kinds of communities along the Great Lakes. And then others came down the Ottawa River to to uh, to Bytown. And some 
went to Kingston and then up the canal to Bytown. So they were coming to Ottawa from both directions. And um, Ottawa saw thousands coming and going. Uh, and and then approximately 3,000 settled in the Ottawa area and close to 7,000 in the Ottawa Valley itself. So it was a major, uh, a major impact uh, on the population at the time because Ottawa was very, very small community. So it was uh, about three quarters of the size of the population landed in in one summer. Now, we've just come through two years of a pandemic and we are all very aware of the strain that put, uh, that put on what is a modern public health service where there is ICU and there's trained doctors, nursing staff and all the rest of it. So when you said that that type of a number came into Ottawa uh, to what was a non-existent health service, uh, the ability to try and curtail and limit uh, the spread of infectious disease would have been a, a serious challenge to anybody. Absolutely. And there were a few brave pioneers. Uh, the public health doctor, Dr. Uh, Edward Van Cortland, was, was a major figure uh, who, who was heroic. He would meet all of the, uh, the refugees at the canal coming off the barges, and he would identify which ones needed immediate medical attention. And um, then the sisters would come, and the sisters themselves had to pick them up in wagons because even the Teamsters were afraid to to go near the uh, the typhus patients for fear of infection, uh, and so um, the small medical staff uh, made a huge impact because uh, you know, relatively speaking, the numbers weren't too bad in Ottawa. There were about uh, under six hundred died here, whereas it would have been thousands had there not been that kind of uh, intervention from the the small. Uh, health uh, health professionals, a small number of health professionals. In modern day Ottawa, we know the Elizabeth Bria Hospital is down uh, close to the museum, right downtown. Back then, it was a different geographic zone, the, the topography or the streets. It was a smaller, tighter area. So where were they sited? I presume down lower town predominantly? Yes. Uh, in fact, the uh, when the sisters came to Bytown two years before, they came in 1845 and established a small little hospital, which is really, it was just a little house on St. Patrick Street um, behind the current modern day cathedral. And, um, but in 1847, because of the infectious disease, they didn't want to use that regular building. So they established a temporary hospital which is really a wooden shed a couple of streets over, which, as it turns out, is on modern-day Briere Street. It was, was where the uh, the famine-Irish typhus patients were, were treated in the facility there, a temporary building. Um, and so uh, it, it's, it's right in the core of, of, of modern-day, and ironically, at the site of, of what became Briere, Briere uh, Health Facility, uh, which, which continues to this day, the... Uh, Briere Continuing Care, uh, in the same location. And in the book, I describe how much work it was for Elizabeth Briere to assemble that land. Uh, it took her a lot of time and had to overcome a lot of prejudice. Uh, but it's it's uh, it's amazing to see that that property is still uh, a healthcare facility today. So, Michael, the level of record keeping 
must have been reasonably good for you to be able to do research and come to uh, be able to chron- uh, to put a chronology on this and also to put some structure on it. Um, what type of sources were you able to get your hands on? <clears throat> well, that's a very good question, Austin. He, uh, I started out in the, in the archives, not on this topic. I was starting to look for basically uh, Irish history in this area in general <clears throat> and came across the newspaper, the Bytown Packet from 1847. <clears throat> Excuse me. And was so moved by the accounts of what was happening in the, in the, with the arrival of the refugees <clears throat> that I decided to look for more uh, primary sources on that story. <clears throat> and um, my next stop was to the Sisters of Charity archives. So the, the, um, the community of the Sisters of Charity have an archives in Ottawa and was able to uh, read the correspondence of a, uh, of Elizabeth Breer. And fortunately she does describe this period by, by writing regular reports to her superior in Montreal, Mother McMillan, McMullen. And, and so through that correspondence coupled with, uh, scraps from the surviving historical uh, newspaper, uh, I then went looking for whatever government documents. So there were, there was a correspondence book from the emigrant agent. Uh, which also provided more insights and more first-hand account of what was happening. So you're right, there was a, a fair amount of documentation that had, uh, had survived. And insofar as it being, you, you identified the Sisters of Charity and then the, the other document, but I guess you were fortunate in a way that much of the time period was captured in in such a tight archive rather than you to having to uh, go into multiple sources to get good material. That's right. Um, I was fortunate that, um, that the, the, the religious community, the Sisters of Charity had, had kept its archives in the same city. Now uh, there was other archives I worked with. Uh, the Oblates of Mary Immaculate were uh, also um present in Bytown and played a key role in supporting Elizabeth Breer. And their archives were now uh, in Richelieu outside of Montreal. But I also uh, got valuable correspondence from their archives in Rome. So um, my goal was to search down all of the original sources. And in this case, it uh, mostly was in the form of correspondence. So because the Oblates were reporting to their superior, like the sisters were, that created a trail of record. And so those letters from the Oblates and from the sisters um, really is, is a very rare uh, exclusive source of eyewitness testimony for this uh, extraordinary event. Indeed. Michael, it, the book you managed to uh, publish it now in 2022, in the middle of, we're not in the middle, but we're uh, Certainly, distribution and getting the word out is a little bit more challenging and has been in the last two years. So you were, you managed to launch at the beginning of the year. Uh, if anybody does want to find out more, if they want to get their hands on the book, where is it accessible? And uh, can you get it here locally on any of the bookshelves as well? Yes, uh, there's a number. Uh, most of the independent booksellers are are carrying it in Ottawa. Uh, as well as uh, several of the chapter stores, particularly in the core of the city 
and if you're looking for information on the book, you can send me an email, uh, michael at mcbain.ca, and that's M-C-B-A-N-E. Right. And um, is it available online? If anybody, like, are you aware that any of the online retailers are carrying it? Uh, not yet, but uh, they eventually it will be made available uh, online. Indeed. Well, congratulations. It's been fascinating. And, and you know, there's so much has happened in this city, uh, particularly relevant to, to the Irish, that uh, that you can put together a book dealing with one year, I guess, <laughs> is an indication of the depth and breadth of history that exists here. Michael McBain, that- it's been an honor and a pleasure chatting with you. My my pleasure indeed. Thank you very much, Austin.